Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to Sheep Thrills. Um, we have a lot to talk about. We are now a week out from Election Day. Um, we know a whole lot more now than we did last week. Um, if you did listen to last week's episode, you'll know that I basically rolled out of bed after staying up all night <laughs> watching election results and then was like, all right, guess I'll go scream into a microphone for an hour. And that's basically what I did. Um, but we do have a lot more information now um, to talk about. Oh boy, oh boy, do we have a lot to get through on today's show. Okay, so we have everything that's happening with the elections um, and what that means moving forwards. But as a little bit of a palate cleanser, I say, as it's completely not a palate cleanser at all, and it's just going to make everyone even more angry. But we're going to start today by talking about what's been going on with Twitter for the past couple of weeks. Um, and then we're going to get into what we know now about the midterms, how that's affecting goings on on Capitol Hill this week, um, and how a recent presidential announcement plays into this whole conversation. Um, and if we have time at the end, I'm going to play my, my newly discovered favorite ad from this campaign cycle. It's wild. And I can't believe I hadn't seen it before, but if we get to it, I'll definitely play it for you. If not, I'll put it somewhere on the internet. Okay, so let's get into it. What the heck is going on with Twitter? So if you've been on the internet at all in the past few weeks, you'll know that a lot has been changing with Twitter, and there's been a lot of conversation going on around Twitter, around um, basically Elon Musk's like hostile takeover of the platform. So we actually talked about this last semester when everything kind of started to happen, um, kind of talking about what Elon's motivations were, what he actually wanted from the platform, kind of why he was doing what he was doing. Um, so you remember we talked about him basically proposing like a crazy high price tag on Twitter, like 33 million or something like that. I don't know what the exact value is. Um, but basically, the, the value that he proposed to buy Twitter at was a lot more than what Twitter was actually worth. And that's important to know because, you know, I don't really know how, like, buying companies works. That's not that's not my particular field of expertise. Um, but basically, there was, like, a system that, like, Elon Musk suggested this huge value. And the, the Twitter board was like, well, I mean, we can't say no to this, so I guess we'll say yes. And then Elon tried to back out and Twitter was like, no, you actually, you can't back out now. You own the company. Go crazy. Um, and so he just, re like the, the, the purchase of Twitter was just recently finalized, like two or three weeks ago. Um, and yeah, again, like the Twitter board accepted that offer, except for that, like, maybe it wasn't a real offer. And it certainly wasn't an offer that he had, like, gone over with any kind of like financial advisor or consultant or anything you just elon musk is is an entity unto himself um but anyway it's actually kind of funny i was thinking about like commentary about the value of twitter um and i remember this really really funny tweet that i saw i think it was a tweet and it was when twitter was changing their care like their character limit count from 140 to 280 characters um, and somebody said, you know, Twitter is making zero money with 140 character tweets, and you all know what zero times two is. Ha ha ha. So basically, Twitter is not a profitable platform, like at all. And it really, really struggles with, with that. Um, and it relies on AdSense, and obviously, like, that's a whole co complicated thing. Um, so Twitter is not actually worth that much. But Elon Musk did, in fact, buy it for, like, a huge amount of money. Um, so Elon was forced to accept the, uh, basically accept the offer by Twitter, and now has no idea what's going on. Um, I'm sorry if that was really loud. It was louder than I intended it to be. So he officially took over as the owner a couple weeks ago. He immediately laid off like a huge chunk of staff without like checking to see if those people were important. Um, and so the first people of the first set of people that he fired was like all of the execs. So he fired the CEO. I think he's now the CEO. I don't really know. He fired, um, like, the head of legal, like, all of those people, just the people that you immediately expect. You know, he had all of this, he had this, like, kind of extremely vitriolic relationship with um, 
this Elon had an extremely vitriolic relationship with the new CEO that took over after Jack left. Um, and so, of course, like that was the first thing that he did was say, yep, goodbye, goodbye, which is very funny to me. Um, but the very the other very funny thing in there is that they actually like have a clause written into their contracts, like all of these high level executive people, that if there is like a hostile takeover of the company and they get fired because of that, um, they get like millions of dollars in severance. So, you know, he's out of the company, but all these guys are like, they're doing just fine. And like, here's my thing, eat the rich, but also I'm happy for them. I, I don't, I don't really trust any technology executives. I don't trust any social media executives. I don't like any of them, but I'm glad that they got a little bit of comeuppance um, as they, as they walked out the door. Um, then the second set of people that he was firing was like a big chunk of like developers um, and he, the way he did it apparently was that he went through and he just fired like the people who had written the least li- individual lines of code. So he fired like whatever, 25% of the different developers who had written the least amount of code, which you think like, it's, it's so funny to me because if you think about it, like that's like a third graders way of like looking at productivity. They're like, well, who's literally producing the least output and let's just get rid of them. Like, that's just not how the world works. And it's very funny to me that, you know, like, you know, it, it, yeah, when I was in high school, when I was a freshman in high school and someone asked me, like, you know, you have a, a, a set of 100 employees and you only have enough money to pay for 75 of them, like, choose which 25 you're going to fire. It's like, oh, well, the ones that are that are writing the least lines of code, that's clearly the answer. But no, like, that's not that's not actually like how this development works. Um so ultimately what he ended up doing was firing all of the like the content moderation people, the whole like human rights team, um basically anyone who was dealing kind of more with like the human side of the platform as opposed to just like the straight rote programming like the like the external side of the of the platform. Um which is obviously a big problem. We know that Twitter is full of misinformation. It's like rampant rampant misinformation. And now the first group of people that he fires are ones that uh, are the ones who are supposed to be dealing with all of that um, content moderation, everything else. So whatever. And then as I was doing a little bit more research, I found that there was actually another round of mass firings. And it was, again, it was mostly contractors that had to do with content matter- moderation and also a handful of people that were involved in co- like the development of core infrastructure services. Um, so it's kind of proving that Elon doesn't really know how his own technology works um, because he's basically in the process of turning off services that are important to people. So he's basically saying, you know, we're turning off all of these servers um, because they actually don't do anything. And we only need one of them in order to actually operate Twitter. And then people were realizing that if they logged out of their account, they couldn't log back in if they had two fa- two factor authentication because one of the systems that he just shut down powered to the two-factor authentication. Um, So a lot of these people who are involved in, like, the actual, you know, the content moderation is one side of it, because that's important for, like, the usability of the platform. But then he was also laying off the, the, the employees that are involved in the actual technology, like, actually producing the service, like, making it Usable, not like usable on a human level with the content moderation, but using it just like on a technical level um, for the for these like core infrastructure services. And apparently, just was just like two or three days ago, he fired between four thousand four hundred and five thousand five hundred contract employees. Um, and again, as if we didn't have enough evidence to prove that Elon is like not a very good person, um, he basically fired all of these people without telling them, and then just like cut off their access to their emails and Slack. Um, and some people were getting form emails that were saying, you're, you know, you're no longer needed at Twitter. People will be in, in touch with you to like talk about the offboarding procedure. Um, but yeah, so he just, he fired all of them in one fell swoop. Um, and then also kind of on the same topic, after that first initial batch of layoffs, because he did it the first day that he came into the office, um, he had to ask many of the people that he laid off to come back. Objectively hilarious that he fired all of these people 
and then said, oh, these people are actually important. They do important work. I actually need them to come back and then ask them to return. I wonder how many of those people actually decided to come back because talk about a vulnerable workplace situation. I would not feel like I had any job security at all if I got laid off out of nowhere and then brought back. I would feel very vulnerable. I would not want to go back to that situation. But also, kind of on this topic, is that there has been a massive amount of technology sector layoffs over the past couple of weeks. So if I was seeing that and I was seeing, mm, well, at least I'll have a temporary job if I do this, I would probably maybe end up going back. I don't know. See, this is never going to be my experience because I am never going to work for Twitter. Most likely. I guess never say never, but like almost certainly I'm not going to go work for Twitter. Um, and then also kind of on the subject, because there's been so many changes happening to the platform and the amount of people that they have working at Twitter has basically decreased by half. Um, there have been pictures and reports coming out of people sleeping on the floor of the office. They can meet those deadlines that are set out for them. Um, there's just reports of like morale being like on the floor, like absolutely in the dumps um, because of everything that has been going on um, in the office over the past couple of weeks. Um, so that's kind of a little bit of background, context, whatever. The biggest story, of course, coming out of Twitter, and I've, 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 I've told this story to people a couple, you know, I don't have a, most of my friends aren't on Twitter. So like trying to explain to them what, what has been happening with Twitter has been the most fun of my life. And it just, I literally start talking and I feel like I'm going crazy, but I'm going to try to summarize to you very briefly the Twitter blue slash verification drama, um, which is also probably, A, it's it's the funniest and the most insane, and B, it's also probably like the biggest consideration when we're thinking about how this all fits into a policy debate. We definitely have to be thinking about how this verification conversation is going to play out. So Elon has said over and over again that he wants Twitter to be a free marketplace of ideas. Um, he wants it to be a like a democratic place where people can share their ideas. It's the public square. It's this and that. And so he thought, okay, Twitter's verification policy of like verifying well-known people is going to, it makes, the, it makes this, this place less democratic because it means that certain voices are being promoted over the voices of others. Okay. And also, like, in terms of, like, who gets the verification and who doesn't. Like, who gets to decide who's a notable person. Fine. That's, like, a fair concern. I, I understand that. There's a lot of people who are, like, very notable who don't have, um, who don't have Twitter verifications who probably should, but, like, whatever. So, he says, we're going to get rid of verification altogether. No more verification. Everyone's on the same playing field. Everyone is equal on this platform. We are a democratic system, which is fine. Okay. But how are you going to discern between real people and people in impersonating those real people? How are you going to be able to tell the difference between like bots and real people? And like, how, how are you going to make sure that that is the case? And he says, okay, fine. I totally, I hear that concern. So I'm going to add an official badge to official people. So there's going to be the, the, the there's going to be no check marks, but under the people's names on your Twitter feed, there's going to be a little badge that says official. Okay, great. But eat Mr. Mr. Elon, sir, how is that different from just like regular verification? So he still implements it. And basically what you see on Twitter for like the first six hours of the day is that there's a handful of people with an official badge and a little verification check mark. So they have two official badges. And notably, something that I find really funny when we get to this phase is that um, Hank Green of the Green Brothers was like basically cyberbullying Elon Musk um, like all week leading up to this. And when the official badges came out, John Green got an official badge and Hank Green did not which is absolutely on purpose 
110%. It's absolutely on purpose and it makes me laugh because Elon Musk is um, actually an egomaniac. Yeah, I'm going to get banned from Twitter for saying that. Anyway, so, okay, we have these official badges. How is that at all different from regular verification? It does. It doesn't change anything at all. Like it literally doesn't change anything. And he says, you know what? You're right. And then he gets rid of the official badges within six hours, six hours. But notably also on Twitter, when you're when you're scrolling through Twitter, as you do, um, there are official badges on accounts that are advertising. Um, So if you get like an ad from a company on Twitter, they usually have a little like official badge that they got rid of for like the normal regular people, which is interesting and will probably probably is because of the thing we're going to talk about next. So third, he says, okay, y'all didn't like the official badges. You didn't like having no verification. So how about this? You get to be verified if you pay $8 a month to get Twitter blue. Silence. Radio silence. Because the, 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 the concern rises again. How are you supposed to tell the difference between real people who have a Twitter account and fake people impersonating those real people who have $8 that they can spend to spread, again, rampant misinformation? And then secondly, no one is going to pay $8 a month for Twitter Blue unless they're, like, trying to prank people, considering that a Disney Plus subscription is only $7.99. You expect me to pay more for Twitter than for a streaming service? That's ridiculous. So if you can possibly believe it, this program causes rampant misinformation to sprout up because there are a million people who are like, LOL, I'm going to spend $8, buy a Twitter domain, um, that like looks like a real thing, but isn't actually the real thing. And I'm going to tweet some random nonsense. And so of course there's, um, people impersonating Elon Musk and tweeting some very funny and distasteful things that I probably can't read. Um, and then there's also people impersonating, excuse me, impersonating like actual companies. So somebody impersonated, um, Eli Lilly, which is like an insulin company basically. And they caused the stock of Eli Lilly to drop 4.37% after they, after a fake account tweeted that they're going to start giving insulin out for free. So like never let anyone tell you that social media doesn't actually have real, like real, um, like practical impacts because here's a real life impact because a fake some rando on the internet had $8 to blow and they spent it buying Eli Lilly real and then tweeting that they were going to start giving out insulin for free. That's crazy. Um, and then, of course, also on that, like, there's been a ton of people impersonating elected officials. Ted Cruz and Ben Shapiro are running around going wild, probably having an affair. Um, just... It's, it's hilarious. So the question is, now what, Mr. Elon? So he gets rid of Twitter Blue in the US. You would, I don't, actually, let, let's check right now, but I do not think that I am able to buy Twitter Blue. Yeah. I am, yeah. At this point, I am not able to buy Twitter Blue on my Twitter in the US. Uh, and then he also adds a little pop-up. So if you go to the person's profile and you click the little blue check mark, you'll be able to see whether or not they are verified because they bought the verification or if they're verified because it's, quote, notable in government, news, entertainment, or another designated category. But let me say something. Going and clicking on that little tiny blue check mark is very difficult. It is a very small little check mark. Um, so obviously that does nothing because it also doesn't display it on the tweet. So most people are going to scroll by, they're going to see a tweet. They're going to go, oh, that's crazy. I'm going to like retweet that. And I'm going to talk about that. And then they're not going to go to the person's profile, click the little check mark 
and see if it's actually a valid or real person. Um, and like, you know, I, I think that I have pretty good digital literacy. You know, I was raised in the internet age. I, I kind of know what I'm looking for in terms of misinformation, um, in terms of fake news media and all of that. Um, but I got, I got a little bit fooled by some of these tweets because they look so real. Like I'm not, when I'm looking at a tweet from Ben Shapiro, if the I in Shapiro is a one, I'm probably not going to notice it, especially if I recognize the profile picture as one that is from Ben Shapiro's actual Twitter account. Um, and so that has been very interesting. And then there's also the, he changed a policy that now verified accounts can't change their like display name. So all of these verified accounts, even before the whole Twitter blue fiasco, um, were changing their names to bully Elon Musk. And because Elon Musk is an egomaniac, he changed the policy so that verified accounts can't change their display name, um, which is just great. Just so funny. Okay, so that's a lot. Here are some of like the major takeaways from all of this. So first of all, as we know, rampant misinformation in a time when misinformation is a huge freaking issue is a huge freaking issue. Um, a lot of people get their news from social media and to not know what news is real and what news is not real and having it be extremely difficult to figure out what's real and what's fake is not good for democracy. It's not good for the world. It is not good. Um, we should be making it easier for people to consume media, not more difficult. And ultimately, this whole verification drama and everything that's going on on Twitter makes it worse. Um, also, in terms of like the content moderation issues, you know, like there, there needs to be some kind of, there needs to be some kind of moderation. Right after Elon took over, there was some like crazy statistic that the number of times the N-word had been used on the platform jumped up like 500% or something crazy like that because these tweets were not getting taken down. And that's not fair to have like this hostile environment um, that people cannot operate in. And again, uh, this kind of takeaway number two is should public squares be privately owned? That's a, that's, that's a great take from our friend John Green. Um, I love the Green Brothers. I don't know if anyone's noticed that, but they, they are, they are, they are my icons. Um, so should public squares be privately owned? Probably not. If there's one individual person who has more money than everybody else, and I said this before, um, when we were talking about Twitter, um, last year, there should not be one person who has more money than God dictating the way that our conversations are able to run in public spaces. You know, if you want this to be a public square, then one individual person shouldn't be making every single decision about what is able to get through. Um, and at least like not I'm not I'm not not saying that Twitter was a perfect platform um, before Elon took over because it certainly was not. And they've had issues with advertisers. Um, they have issues with data privacy. They have issues with moderation, a whole slew of things. But I think that Elon Musk as the dictator of Twitter is not good for anything, and it's certainly not good for democracy. So the final conclusion here is, is Twitter going to die? Maybe. Like, it's not looking great. Um, and, and, you know, social media platforms dying is not like unseen thing. It's not an unseen phenomenon. It's happened before. Happened to Vine. It'll happen again. Um, but is Twitter the next to go? And if Twitter does die, you know, who is going to rise up to take its place? Um, and I really don't think that inst like Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook, Tumblr, like none of them have the same exact interface as, um, as Twitter. Honestly, my best bet, now that I'm thinking about this out loud, is that Instagram will implement a, a system where you can post pictures or post short phrases, like post short little clips. I, I could totally see that happening. And because 
honestly, Instagram is famous for for stealing things from from other platforms. They did the th- same thing with Snapchat and Stories and everything. So I would not be shocked if something like that started coming out. And then maybe we'll all just switch over to Instagram. So someone tweeted that they needed to start warming up their Twitter personality on Instagram, and I, I think they're right about that. I think it's time to start just absolutely being wild on Instagram so that everybody is prepared for the inevitability of the platform dying. So that is all I wanted to say on Twitter. I mean, we could talk about that forever, and I'm sure there's going to be many opinions, but that's that's kind of all I want to talk about there. Now we're going to talk about midterms. Um, so again, we are one week out from election day. Woohoo. While we're doing this, let me pull this up so that I have an updated list of... Oh, not that. Oh my gosh, please. Okay, cool. So, I'm kind of... I've been laughing this week a lot. Um, because in one of my classes, we've been talking about the idea of like a pluralistic future. So at any given point in time, there's multiple different futures that are possible and every different future has a different probability of happening. So like a week before election day, there were four different outcomes for the com- like the combined control of the House and the Senate. Um, the multiple versions of the future... And then once you get to election day, the idea is that there's now one present. So you go from a pluralistic future to a single present or like a single future. Um, and my professor was so excited about coming into class yesterday. Um, and he was like, fine, we're finally going to be able to talk about like the singular future. But that is still not the case um, because we are, in fact, a week out from election or a week, a week out on the other side from election day. And we still do not have a singular future. Um, things are starting to look a little bit more clear, but we still do not know where control of the house is going to end up. Um, and that's a pretty big deal. Again, we're not going to get into to everything that we talked about last week, but just as a summary, um, the midterm elections went a lot better for the Democrats than they were expecting to go. Um, and the fact that control of the House still hasn't been called yet, I don't think by any major publication, is a pretty big deal. Um, Because, you know, goes to show, like, things are still up in the air and nothing yet is quite fixed. Um, So, that's a little bit of setup to the biggest announcement that we're probably talking about today. And I'm kind of burying the lead, but to be honest, I don't really want to talk about it because I just spent about 25 minutes talking about Elon Musk, and now I'm going to have to spend 10 minutes talking about Donald Trump. So, like, I'm going to do it, but I'm not going to be happy about it. Um, So, very important to context for all of this is that Donald Trump just announced last night that he is, in fact, running for re-election. We're all shocked, and we're all upset. Um, So he announced that he was going to be doing this big announcement um, before the election happened. And he definitely thought that this was going to be some big victory lap for him, um, where he was going to say, look at all of these voters who are choosing the Republican Party. They're choosing me. Look at all of the candidates that I endorsed that won. I'm running for re-election, and I know that you guys have so much buy-in because of all of these things. Like, let's get to work. Um, And of course, that was not the case. This speech was not the big victory lap that he thought it was going to be. He spent a lot more of a lot more of the speech kind of defending himself um, and defending his role within the Republican Party rather than kind of patting himself on the back and patting the Republicans on the back. So, you know, very, very few of his frontline endorsed candidates and challengers won. Um, And I don't think any of his statewide candidates won. Again, I'm talking about competitive races. Um, And so, you know, what he said, he said, well, all of my, like, all of my candidates, except for 22, won. And you're not going to see that in the fake news media. But he endorsed, like, 250 candidates. Like, he endorsed almost every Republican candidate. Um, But it doesn't matter that he 
endorsed Marjorie Taylor Greene when she was going to win whether or not he endorsed her at all. The people that we need to be looking at, those 22 candidates that lost, those are the frontline candidates that were in competitive races where the endorsement actually probably mattered. Um, and so, obviously, that's important context going into this as well, of him trying to mount that defense of, oh, well, yeah, I have a handful of candidates that lost, but look at all these candidates that won, which is, like, wildly misleading, which is also what the CNN commentators said after I wrote that note. They said, that's wildly misleading. I said, oh, my God, Caitlin Collins, we're on the same page. Um, put me on CNN. Don't. I would embarrass myself so badly. Um, he also said, basically, that the voters, quote, overwhelmingly rejected the left's platform of national ruin except for that they very much didn't. Um, he claimed that they won back control of the House, which is like likely going to happen, um, but we don't know that yet. Uh, and no platforms that I have seen have actually called it. Um, we'll get into this later, but like no, I don't think anybody has actually called the House yet. Um, even though like they're probably gonna win the House, but it's not like 100%, it's not 100% clear at this point. Um, so yes, they likely did win back control of the House, they didn't win the Senate, and they did not win by a crazy margin. Um, and so like the two lines of defense there were that he said, A, you know, the, the, in terms of like, oh, well, the Republicans should have done better in this election. He basically argued that the, quote, total effect of the suffering has not been felt yet. Um, and so he's saying in 2022, People aren't quite yet understanding of, like, all of the suffering that is being experienced. But in 2024, they will be experiencing that that level of pain and suffering. Um, which is, he sounded so gleeful about it. He sounded so gleeful about the idea of, of, of the American people suffering. So that's just Donald Trump, but whatever. Um, so that's kind of the first defense. And then the second line of defense was, this also kind of sounded like he went off script a little bit, but it, you know, can neither confirm nor deny. Um, he said, like, I told them to keep their expectations down. They said, let's win by 40 seats. I said, oh, if you win by two, that'll be okay too. That's such nonsense. That is such, such nonsense. I actually was in the library and I almost yelled out loud. Like, be quiet be silent. I beg of you to be silent. Um, that is not what happened. There is, that is not what happened at all. He is absolutely livid that they didn't win by 40 seats. And we know this from like insider accounts. We know this from all of the conversations that have been happening, um, throughout. Like we, we, we know that Donald Trump expected them to win by 40 seats and is absolutely angry that they did not win by 40 seats. Um, I told them to keep their expectations up. Like, you absolutely need to be quiet. Um, so, again, those are kind of the, the the main forms of defense here. I'm running. He's saying, I'm running for re-election. I know that the Republicans didn't do amazing during the midterms. But, A, we won back the House. B, most of my endorsed candidates won. C, the total effect of suffering has not been felt yet. It will be felt come 2024. And D, I told them to keep their expectations down. They were the ones saying, oh, we need to win by 40 seats. That wasn't me. So again, he's trying to position himself again as the de facto leader of the party, even though most of the conventional wisdom on this election has been that it was about, it was an anti-Trump referendum more than it was like a pro-Biden referendum. Um, the Democrats won, the, the kind of conversation has been that the, the, the Democrats have won in spite of Biden rather than because of Biden, and the Republicans lost because of Trump, not in spite of Trump. Um, so he's trying to reframe this election season around saying, oh, I'm still the leader of the party. I'm still, I still have authority. I still have, like, I'm still positioned well even though we did not do as well as we thought we were supposed to do. Um, so that's very interesting, and that's a very interesting framing, and that's certainly going to be, obviously, something that comes up in, in debate 
again, particularly around any kind of Republican primary challenge, um, DeSantis is very clearly eyeing a run for the presidency. Um, DeSantis and Trump are now adversarials, I I think I mentioned last week. Um, And so the question, of course, is, does DeSantis run against Trump in a primary? And whoever wins there, like, who comes out on top? Um, And I saw a tweet, if I can pull it up. Just me on Twitter. I'll never leave. So this is what, you know, just some nonsense person on the internet, but kind of what I was thinking as well, you just articulated it better, was this is this will play out in one of three ways. One, Trump wins the nomination. Two, DeSantis wins the nomination. Trump runs as an independent. Three, DeSantis wins the nomination. Trump tells his supporters, his supporters to boycott the election. In all three scenarios, Biden wins. Um, and that seems to be the case to me, especially... Um, given what we know about people's feelings on Donald Trump, um, given this election. So he also was, you know, he was pretty low energy. It was, they said on CNN that he was teleprompter Trump. Um, that being said, just because he was on a teleprompter doesn't mean that he did not go off script. He was only supposed to speak for like 20 or 30 minutes and he was speaking for like an hour. All of the major networks cut away from him because it was just getting super boring. Um, even Fox News cut away after like 30 minutes. Um, I saw a video. Yeah, they did, obviously did the speech at Mar-a-Lago. I saw a video of people who were sitting in like the back rows trying to leave the speech after the announcement and security would not let them leave. They're like, no, you actually have to stay for the whole speech. I don't know how long he ended up up talking, but after that 30 minute mark, there was nothing else for him to say. And then he was just vamping um, because that's what he does is he vamps. So he was pretty low energy. It was not usually, it was not like Trump is usually, um, it was the same, you know, it was the same language and the rhetoric that he always uses, um, but certainly not as, like, fired up as I guess he usually is. So, I don't know. I don't know what that means, or I don't know if that was just his advisors, like, desperately telling him to just, like, be chill for a second. Um, but regardless, Donald Trump's running for president again. Woohoo! So, now let's talk about... Now that we have all of this information, where do we stand in terms of each of the different bodies? So in terms of the Senate, we officially have a 50-49 Senate with Georgia going to runoff in December. Um, Nevada was the last race to be called for Catherine Cortez Masto. Um, She beat out Adam Laxalt, which was very exciting for me personally because um, of, of, of many things. Um... So the Dems won the majority of the flippy Senate seats. Um, So they flipped in Pennsylvania, one in Arizona and Nevada, leading in Georgia going into the runoff. Um, And then the only place they lost was actually Wisconsin, um, which is pretty interesting. So again, Georgia is going to runoff. And to be honest, I and don't see the Trump announcement being helpful, Um, like I don't think that it's going to fire anybody up to go out and vote. Um, first, again, first of all, I don't think the Trump announcement is going to do anything for anyone. And second of all, um, I think the big reason why Herschel Walker was able to stay in the race that long um, was because um, people were people Republicans were in Georgia were voting to have the Republicans win the Senate. They were not voting for Herschel Walker. They were voting for the Republicans in general. Um, And now that there is no chance of the Republicans winning a majority in the Senate, I think that's going to suppress Republican turnout quite a lot. Um, I don't see people really turning out and voting for him in crazy numbers. Uh, Again, just given the fact that the Democrats already have control of the Senate, seems like it's not going to go super well for for old Herschel down there. Um, and again, the main issue in the Senate was the issue of candidate quality. Um, Republican Senate candidates were not really great. Um, I didn't talk about Blake Masters in Arizona too much, um, mostly because I thought it was like the safest of the toss-up races, so I just didn't really want to get into it. But I did not realize just how truly interesting of a campaign Blake Masters was running in Arizona, um, 
it's scary. Um, and if we, again, if we have time, we're going to listen to one of his ads at the end of the episode. I already do not foresee us having the time, but we'll see. Um, again, Dr. Oz, Blake Masters, Adam Lexalt, Herschel Walker, all not great candidates in really competitive races. So it's kind of this, this like two, two sided sword or whatever, two sided coin of bad candidates and the Trump endorsement kind of pervading all of these races. Um, so that's why that's why the Republicans didn't do that. Didn't that didn't do that well in the Senate. Um, we also don't know about the results of Alaska Senate, but we'll probably know sooner rather than later. Um, and hopefully we do get results from the Georgia runoff before this season ends. Um, my last episode, I think, is the day after the Georgia runoff, so we'll see. Hopefully we have kind of a better picture of the way that things are going to go um, come December. So now moving on to the House, um, as of just now, looking at the New York Times, um, we have the Republicans in control of 217 seats, Democrats in control of 209 seats. Um, that's a five seat net gain for the Republicans. Um, as, as we all know, it's 218 seats for the majority in the House. And we currently have nine undecided races. Um, so these nine races are, there's like three that are pretty, pretty leany Republican. They're like, they, they look, I mean, actually how the heck, oh my gosh, I'm just looking, I'm looking now at the New York times and the, a couple of these races literally only have 50% of the vote in. So I don't, what's going on in California? Why does California's third district only have 57% of the vote in? Anyway, um, so California's 27th district, California's third and California's 22nd districts are all kind of right now on the leaning Republican. Although, I mean, I guess anything can change with like the other 40% of the vote that we're still waiting for there. Um, kind of right there in the middle um, is Colorado's third district. That's Lauren Boebert's seat. Um, she's up by 0.35% right now. That is just over a thousand votes. Um, 95% of the vote is in, um, but that's almost certainly going to go to a recount. So we're probably not going to know the result of that for a pretty long time. Um, there's also California's 13th district where the Democratic candidate is up by 600 votes with 86% of the vote in. Um, and then we have California 47, which is Katie Porter's district, did not know she was vulnerable. Very interesting. Uh, we have Maine 2nd District, which is um, Jared Golden, also interesting. Um, California's 49th District, and then Alaska at large. Um, and again, those last four are pretty safe for the Democrats. Those top three are pretty safe for the Republicans. So it's going to kind of all come down to a couple of those seats in the middle where they're only up by 100 or so votes. Um, so... Those nine battleground seats right in the middle, one way or the other. Um, right now, like the forecast-ish that the um, New York Times has is 221 seats for the Republicans, 214 for the Democrats. Um, but who knows? Who knows at all? Um, so the Republicans are almost certainly going to win the House, but by like six or seven seats. Um as I talked about last week, it's not the margin that they're looking for. And again, like Donald Trump saying that he tried to talk the Republicans down from trying to win 40 seats is hilarious. It's so funny um, because it's not true. Um, so, again, we're going to be waiting for a long time to get these um, to get these results from the House, which is just like so truly exhausting. I like don't want to continue to talk about it um so if california could just count their votes a little faster i have legitimately no idea what's going on we are eight days from election day why do you only have 57 percent of your vote count in please hurry it up anyway i saw somebody say this is a tangent but i saw somebody say that there should be an election day and there should be a results day so everyone votes on whatever the first 
Tuesday of, of November, and then the results are all released the, the, the second Tuesday of November. I think that's a great idea, so we don't have to do all this nonsense. Okay, but moving on. Briefly, governor's races. Um, the only big update here is that Katie Hobbs beat the Trump-endorsed Carrie Lake, who is spooky. Um, and she looks like she's the only candidate that's kind of sowing the seeds of election denial. But nobody is doing this with the same fervor as they were doing in 2020. Um, also, with Katie Hobbs winning, it means that we have 12 female governors. That's up from nine last year. Um, and also, I think I might have mentioned this last week, but we have the two we have two lesbian governors, which is really kind of fun. Um, and everyone's talking about Maura Healy being the first um, lesbian governor from Massachusetts or out lesbian governor from Massachusetts, but also... Um, Tina Kotek in Oregon just won her race, um, which I think I talked about last week, but it's kind of fun. It's kind of fun that we got, we got two firsts, um, representation. We love to see it. Um, all right. And now let's talk about a couple big takeaways and then get into, if we can get into it, get into what's next, what are we looking for over the next couple of weeks? Um, there's been a lot of conversation over what the new profile of a successful swing state or swing district Democratic candidate looks like. And people are particularly looking at Piltola, who is running for Alaska at large, um, Fetterman in Pennsylvania, and Glusenkamp Perez out of Washington. Um, they're all, you know, very, like, authentic candidates who just appear to be insider outsiders. Um, and Perez and Piltola are both kind of leaning on the pro-choice, pro-Second Amendment narrative, basically just like pro-rights, um, which has been really effective for them, kind of running in those really competitive seats um, where Republicans did not expect to lose. Um, and then the next takeaway is how this all plays into the leadership battle. Um, so the, again, elected officials are back in DC this week for the first time since the election. Um, they have all of caucus meetings and it's also new member orient. Oh, excuse me. It's also new member orientation week. Um, so we're getting some solid content from the Hill this week. Um, I might, I think I mentioned this last week. We have the first Gen Z elected official out of Florida. And of course, you know, he's, he's an internet man. Um, so we're getting a lot of very fun 0.5 selfies, which is great. Um, and we also have videos of John Ossoff's baby on the Senate floor, which is really cute. Um, but anyway, so they're back in DC. They're doing their leadership elections. Um, and of course, the, that main leadership conversation has been around whether or not um, Kevin McCarthy would be the majority leader for the Republicans or whether or not he would get the nod from the caucus um, for the Republican speaker nomination. Um, there is some scuttle, some conversation that he wouldn't get that nod, um, but he did ultimately um, get the nod, the nomination to be the, you know, the Republican candidate to be Speaker of the House. Um, but the question now is, can he actually attain the position? Um, can any single candidate get a majority of the members of Congress to vote for them? Um, because you do need to get a majority um, in order to win the, the, the position. Um, and it's based on the extremely narrow margin that the Republicans are working with here. I don't foresee, um, I mean, I don't know. What do I know, really? He'll probably get it, but I think that it'll be a really tough battle for him to actually manage to get a majority of, he's gonna have to get every single Republican in a line and threaten their lives and threaten their children in order to actually get them all to vote for him, especially when there's been this like large contingency or moderately sized contingency of Republicans who have said that Kevin McCarthy is not an effective leader. It's his fault that the um, the Republicans didn't do that well. It's his fault for kind of buying into the whole Trump nonsense. Um, so they kind of blame him. And so I don't know if he's going to be able to get all of that support. Kevin McCarthy is no Nancy Pelosi. Say what you will about Nancy Pelosi. She is good at her job. She is good at her job. 
Um, and yeah, so it's again, it's all yet to be seen. Nancy Pelosi will probably get the Democratic nod for the nomination. Um, and so it'll be Kevin versus Nancy and we'll see how it goes. Um, but that is kind of the conversation we are now looking forward, um, looking forward to. Now, the other important thing on the Democratic side is the new leadership of the D-Trip. So bestie Sean Patrick Maloney, worstie Sean Patrick Maloney in New York kind of blew it. Um, and failures in New York for the Democrats, where basically the the, Demo- the Democrats, I think, flipped or the Republicans flipped five Democratic seats in New York, which is the entire margin right now. Um, and so basically people have been saying failures in New York cost Democrats any chance of um, a majority in the House. And Sean Patrick Maloney is a big part of that problem, especially because he lost really, really bad in a Democratic seat. He should not have lost his seat. Um, he's been framing it in that he like kind of fell on the sword for the rest of the caucus, but that does not appear to be the case. Um you know, his Democratic primary was extremely competitive. He pushed Mondaire Jones, who is an incumbent, out of his seat due to redistricting, then lost really big. Um, and so now conversations about, like, why Sean Patrick Maloney did what he did is is going to be big. And also conversations about who the new D-Trip chair is going to be is a new kind of core topic of conversation um, and kind of which member of Congress is going to take up that mantle and see whether or not they can do a better job, especially considering now we know like how truly insanely competitive the 2024 elections are going to be with Biden potentially at the top of the ticket. So we'll see. Um, so now let's talk about what's next. Um, we have we are now entering the lame duck session for the next two months or so. Um, again, we have leadership elections that we're watching. So seeing how that all kind of pans out. Um, We're also going to have conversations over the budget, um, whether the Republicans in the House have enough momentum to kind of push that process over into the new session in January is yet to be seen. I don't think so. Um, I think they're probably going to have to come to some sort of compromise. Um, There's also going to be conversations around the debt ceiling and the um, National Defense Authorization. Whole bunch of stuff going on there. Um, and we're also going to see both sides kind of setting their legislative priorities for the next year. So kind of seeing the Republicans recalibrating with what they're planning to do, um, and kind of making some big decisions about what they actually think they can get through with an extremely slim majority in the House and, uh, no majority in the Senate at all. Um, so that will be very interesting to kind of see what both sides are picking up on, what they're prioritizing. Um, and then, of course, before that all happens, we've got the Georgia runoff, which, again, hopefully we can get the results before the semester ends. Um, but we keep rolling. American politics, it just keeps rolling. We go and we go and we go and we never get a break. Um, so we will be watching all of this legislation in the House. We'll be watching the Trump campaign and its first actions. Um, we will be watching leadership elections so on and so forth. We've got like three more episodes. Um, no episode next week because of Thanksgiving break. Um, but once we come back, let me just confirm once we come back. Oh yeah. Two more episodes once we get back on the 30th and the 7th. Um, so we've got two more weeks of nonsense to talk about. Uh, and then we wrap it up and, uh, we go home for winter break. But with all that being said, thank you all so much for listening. I hope you guys have a great week. You're enjoying this crisp fall weather, um, and I will see you all in a couple of weeks.